almost all of the attention so far on coaching has been on the coach and the coach's knowledge and the coach's technique and the coach's you know, skill set. Not very much attention has been paid to the recipient. What can we do to help people become more coachable? And how can we measure that coachability? How can we show them the behaviors that they can practice, which will make them more receptive to coaching, will therefore kind of guarantee the success of the whole coaching process to a much higher, much higher degree. What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting? Nothing is ever the same again, breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. So you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. Jack Zanger, welcome to Flow Research Collective Radio. Thank you so much for taking the time. My great pleasure. I really appreciate you coming on. And um, I'm going to read out your bio here to start us off. And then uh, I'm going to ask you a question about your day in the life as a CEO, <laughs> because you've got a very inspiring story on that front, in my opinion. So your career spans more than five decades, more than 50 years, and has combined entrepreneurial, corporate, and academic endeavors. You are the CEO and co-founder of Zenger Folkman, which is a firm specializing in 360 assessments, leadership, and organizational development. And you're a world-leading expert in the field of leadership development and organizational behavior, and a highly esteemed speaker, consultant, and executive coach with the ability to connect with audiences through your really compelling research, which we're going to be talking about today, and also through inspiring stories. And before forming Zenger Folkman, you were the Vice President of Human Resources for Syntex Corporation. Then you co-founded Zenger Miller and served as its President and CEO until 1991, which the Wall Street Journal named as one of the 10 best suppliers of, of executive development. And you were later a Group Vice President of the Times Mirror Corporation and then became the President of Provent, a publicly traded combination of 21 companies in the training industry. Mm -hmm. I would love to touch on that. That sounds like a fascinating blend of organizations. So I'm sure we'll unpack that a little bit. And then you were also on the faculty at the University of Southern California, USC, which is near where I am at the moment. And you also taught at Stanford Graduate School of Business and served as the chairman of the board of trustees of Utah Valley University. And you're currently a regent for the higher education system in the state of Utah. Finally, you hold a doctorate in business administration from the University of Southern California, an MBA from UCLA, and a bachelor's degree from Bigham Young University. And you're the co-author of seven books on leadership. And after an unsuccessful attempt at retirement, <laughs> uh, it seems that you freely admit that you're pretty passionate about what you do and you love helping leaders strengthen their leadership skills and their workplaces. And that's where I wanted to start is... If you're open to it, uh, no pressure, but if you're open to sharing a little bit about um, your your age and the, the work that you are still managing to do, I think the listeners would find it very inspiring. I know I find it incredibly inspiring, so maybe we can start there. <laughs> uh, I'm not at all embarrassed. So uh, this, this month, I will turn uh, 91, and uh, I've been, um, as you said earlier, I've been involved in this whole leadership development arena for probably a lot longer than you've been alive, probably 65 years, and in a variety of roles. And I I find it uh, constantly challenging and and find there's exciting new things uh, happening in, in the field. And so I, I did try retirement for a month and a half, and I, I didn't find that all that rewarding and satisfying. So I've um, much preferred to be in the ring rather than uh, sitting in the stands. Um, so that's that's basically where I am 
and I, I, I'm not sure people ask me when I might re want to retire, and I say I, I probably will leave horizontally, not not vertically, probably from from this. I love that. It's incredibly inspiring, very much so along the lines of our philosophy at Flow Research Collective. What Flow says is that fulfillment and happiness comes through engagement, not yeah. through consumption or through, you know, attempting yeah. uh, to maximize pleasure. And so you're a living embodiment of that. Would you be open to sharing what the experience of retirement was like and then why it's more enjoyable to not be retired and to still be a CEO at 91. Well, I, I think probably we, we should involve my wife in this discussion because, you know, when I was at home, I, I think I was just really a, a fly on fly in the ointment and kind of trying to bring order to, to the house and in ways that she wasn't particularly appreciative of. And, and I just think we, we, we both kind of decided that, it was far more um, enjoyable when I had something that was really meaningful to me and that I enjoyed doing. And uh, so it's been it's been a, a mutual decision that that uh, being at home trying to manage your spouse is not the right approach to having a happy marriage. <laughs> so that that makes sense. No, I hear you on that. And uh, yeah, you've been working uh almost three times as long as i've been alive um, yeah. mm -hmm. so what is it that you that you like about your work and, and what you do what is it that you that you you know there are there are several dimensions to it i think uh, one is that the nature of the work that we do is one that provides the opportunity to constantly be learning so i find that there's great joy in learning new things, finding good research that isn't being fully applied and to find ways of, you know, to practically implement that. Uh, what I particularly enjoy about my, my role now is that it has a great deal of variety to it. So I go from doing some externally facing things with clients to uh, being an individual contributor. I love to write. I love to research. Uh, uh, I do find, as one of my friends said, I enjoy having written more than I enjoy writing, but I enjoy uh, I, I enjoy the, the, the process and, and, and what that all means. I also think that there is something about position in life where you have leverage, where you can impact things and make a, a bigger dent than you can if you're just an individual solo contributor. And uh, so I, I find being part of an organization to be extraordinarily rewarding because I, I do think it affords you the opportunity of, uh, of making a bigger impact. So the list could go on, but, but those are some of the things that are really uh, motivating to me and, and why I choose to keep on doing it. Mm. One of the things I was struck by, Jack, when we first spoke was just how sharp you are cognitively. And uh, honestly, I felt I felt a little slow, relatively speaking, when we first <laughs> talked. Um, and I'm curious if you could describe any shifts that you've experienced, you know, from, let's say, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s to now <laughs> in terms of cognitive performance, motivation, energy, drive things like that? Has there been a, a theme for each decade uh, across some of those dimensions? You know, I, I, I wish I knew why some people are able to kind of keep working later years. And I would be the first to kind of say, I think it's genetics. I think it's luck. I think it's, I do try to take care of myself. I try to exercise every day. I try to eat eat well. I try to get good night's sleep. And I think part of it is having a happy family life and, and uh, having good relationships with, with your kids and your neighbors and being involved in what you deem to be some worthwhile things. But yeah, I think there, there are lots of things that combine 
I, I honestly feel like I'm as productive now from a kind of an intellectual point of view as I have ever been in my lifetime, uh, going back to my you know 30s and 40s and 50s. Um, I'm still writing as much. I'm still um, I'm still as curious. Uh, I will confess that on weekend afternoons, I it's very it's very convenient to take a, a long nap. <laughs> so physically, there may be just a little less kind of you know vitality, but uh, I must say that. I feel as well today as I did when I was in my 40s and 50s. Um, my my physician says that at my age, uh, my chances of living five more years are equally as good as they were when I was 50. I do believe that that uh, for the people in in this generation, uh, at the age of 50, your life is probably only about half half lived and uh i i think that's been a wonderful change in our in our society uh it's sad that a high percentage of people in their later years are having some cognitive challenges and there's this rampant kind of alzheimer's dementia kind of phenomenon i'm hoping we'll find some answers to that um but, but um for those of us who are just, you know, lucky and able to <clears throat> not be in that situation, um, people should not be living in fear of the last couple of decades of their life. It's a really great point that, and if you take it one step further and think about the length of your adult life, with your adult life starting roughly 2021, 20, by 50, you know, you're, you're just a bit over a third into your adult life yeah. based on that measure. Yeah. And that, that's a really significant reframe versus what yeah. a lot of the conventional thinking is around age and decelerating at around 50. You know, if you're, if you're less than, if you're only a bit over a third into your adult life, you should be just getting started at 50. <laughs> that's right. So, <laughs> it's like you did so yeah yeah and i think it i think that all becomes a pretty self-fulfilling prophecy i mean if you if you think that you know life should end at 65 and you should retire and go uh, sit on the beach and clip coupons uh then i you know I, my observation has been that my friends who have done that uh they begin to shrink and they begin to decline and in contrast the ones who don't do that and who get themselves actively involved in some worthwhile thing, whether it's charitable, whether it's uh, some some you know philanthropic cause, as long as they're active and and kind of there's a purpose for them getting up in the morning, uh, it, it seems to really prolong life to a much in a much healthier way. Yeah, that's a that's a really great point as well. The way in which you think about the arc of your life will largely determine the arc of the life. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so, I believe it. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, thanks for sharing that, Jack. That's really interesting. Let, let's uh, before we go into some of the specifics of you know your view on leadership and leadership development, uh, I would love to just zoom back a little bit to your experience as the president of was it Provence? Am I pronouncing that correctly? Provence. You know, we called it Provence. Uh, Provence was a, a a company that was initially kind of uh, the brainchild of some people who had done industry consolidations. They looked at the training and development industry and said, wow, this is a highly fragmented industry. Why wouldn't it make sense to bring these companies together? They turned to me and asked if I would serve as a consultant with them. I, I agreed to do that and um, help them kind of find 21 really good companies. It was all done at a, at a difficult time. It was in the 2008-2009 timeframe. Uh, and, you know, there, there were some properties that they overpaid for. And so from a financial point of view, it, it began to have some real challenges and ultimately unraveled. <clears throat> I would say that probably merging companies in one industry can be fairly simple. 
merging companies in the intellectual property world, a whole different problem because people feel so passionately about their intellectual property, their ideas, that merging them together is a little bit like merging religions. And it, it it's not always an easy fit. And so some of the hoped for synergies uh, just did not ever occur. And I, I think in hindsight, maybe we should have been able to see that, that um, where this group had had success in the past was merging ambulance companies who, who had a regional or a local presence. And you could combine them and use common technology and buying power and you could uh, you, you you really could combine those in a in a meaningful way. Uh, companies in our in our kind of industry are a different matter. And is that because of the differing viewpoints on leadership and the IP that could be contradictory or at least not synergized? Uh, yeah, I think so. And I, I just think that there are there it is a much more difficult integration where you're trying to integrate different philosophies and different points of view and different mindsets and uh, rather than just merging different tangible products or 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 different regional territories where they're all doing the same thing what were some of the big lessons about the overall leadership development industry that you took from that experience. I imagine it was fruitful. Well, I, I think the big lessons were that that um, people be, become very enamored with with their their own product, their own philosophy. They have real passion about that for them to kind of uh, effectively market and represent differing points of view and different different disciplines is a big stretch and uh, it isn't what, that there was antagonism or, or you know, any kind of warfare going on between these organizations. It's just that they, that they had a hard time really fully adopting and integrating um, their, their sales function, their marketing function uh, with others. And so I just think it was, it was a good lesson. And, and then at, Sanger Folkman, your, your current organization, what is the view on leadership, I suppose, that you personally take? And I'm assuming that aligns to the view that you have at Sanger Folkman. But yeah, I would love to hear about just, sure. you know, your, your definition or description of you know, leadership. I, I think our current take on leadership is that maybe it's a paraphrasing of what Benjamin Franklin said, that there are three hard things in life. One are diamonds, quartz, and knowing about yourself. I think what we fundamentally stand for is that effective leaders need to have a good understanding of their impact on their colleagues, particularly their subordinates. And that kind of self-knowledge doesn't come from them going through psychotherapy or going through counseling. Uh, it doesn't involve them going off to retreats and and uh, you know practicing yoga. Uh, the kind of knowledge that they need is to understand the impact that they have on people with whom they work. And the best way that we found to give them that kind of insight is through a three sixty degree feedback process. We're we're using some. Uh, empirically derived instrument, you can help them get a good grasp of their strengths and the things that they don't do quite so well. Our research has clearly pointed out that the most effective leaders are, are certainly not perfect people, but tend to possess a handful of strengths. And it's not the same. It's not the same strengths from person A to person B, but of, of the maybe 19 competencies that would typically be measured by a traditional 360 degree feedback process. If leaders can be really, really good at four or five of those, 
they almost invariably will be seen as being outstanding kind of stellar performers in their company, in their industry. And if you can help leaders understand their strengths and magnify their strengths and be confident in using their strengths, that's the, the biggest gift that you can give to them. Now, for about 20% of leaders, uh, our, our data is pretty clear. Off, they are often doing some one or two or three, three things that clearly detract from their performance and drag them down. And until you can help them see that and help them overcome that, uh, they're, they're never going to have the kind of success that they would otherwise have. But, but that, that, that opportunity to see what they do well and what they, if, if they are having some uh, flat sides, some, some uh, problems that really just are millstones around their neck, which kind of, they, they drown. And the, the most recent research that we've done is just understanding why is it that in an economic downturn, a certain group of executives gets terminated? What do those executives who were terminated have in common? And what we find is that what they have in common is they weren't coachable. They, they, they weren't receptive to feedback. They weren't receptive to information from their bosses and their colleagues about what they were doing that kind of detracted. And they just... Uh, be, because of their arrogance and their complacency, their careers are derailed. Have you found, Jack, that 360s specifically are one of the most useful tools or interventions for, you know, increasing leadership ability? Or, you know, if if so, why? And and if not, what are some of the most useful tools or interventions? We have found that the 360 is one of the most useful tools. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. But it's probably the most economical, the most, um, you know, it's, it's personal. Um, it's, it's empirical. Um, and if, if people enter into it and into the, into the process with the right mindset, they can derive enormous benefits from it. And so <clears throat> because self-knowledge is so, is so valuable and the kind of self-knowledge is the knowledge of, of your impact from, you know, to other people. And so you need, you need external sources of that information. It can't, it isn't very successfully derived just by me sitting cross-legged on the floor and kind of humming uh, my mantra together. I mean, I, I, it, it, its best comes from uh, the objective inputs from others. Uh, and I think that that willingness to, to seek feedback and ask for feedback and to reflect on it and to process it and then to kind of implement it where, where appropriate, that's what really seems to be the hallmark of, of leaders who succeed. And just to quickly describe for folks how it works. Could you give a quick breakdown on what a 360 degree feedback sure. process looks like? The 360 process is, is a process where you, in our case, what we did was to empirically create an instrument. Right? We, we looked at some 2000 behavioral items and said, when you use those items, which seem to be most consistently able to separate the high performing from the average or poor performing leaders, so if you can create an empirically create you know derived instrument, and then you can give that instrument to a number of the of a manager's colleagues, and by a number we average maybe fourteen or fifteen, and that would be usually kind of the manager himself or herself, the that person's boss, their their manager. It would be five or six of their peers. It would be all of their direct reports, which may be six or seven or whatever number. 
So on average, it's 14 or 15, but we've had a, a dean of a medical school who invited 400 of the, of the medical school's employees to complete a questionnaire about him. Uh, so it, it, it can range, you know, wide ranges, but the beauty is that if you get all this data and, and you have very specific questions, usually about 40 or 50, you can't have too many questions because people tire and there's there's a survey fatigue that can set in. But then if you give them a chance to answer two or three open-ended questions about what this person's strengths are, what their what their flat sides might be, what would be most important for them to work on in order to be more effective in their current role. If you combine all that information in a, in a positive way and you give that information to the, the participant, it's amazing how many times all you need to do is to, is to help them be sure they understand it. And then just to step aside and often they will make a lot of mid-course corrections on their own. Sometimes it really helps to kind of meet with them and have a coach periodically talk with them and help them create a personal plan of development. And so that creation of a plan of development is, is key. And then over time to kind of have some sustainment tools, some monitoring devices, some ongoing pulse surveys or a repeated 360 degree feedback process, which monitors their progress. So the, the whole thing can be put together in a very positive way. Now, are there people who have had bad experiences with 360s? Sure. Our, our observation is that it's very often when some outside firm slaps one together administers it, sends it to them by email, no follow-up, no help in implementation, no, no ongoing sustainment uh, processes. And people just look at it as being kind of an exercise and kind of in futility. And it's up on the shelf, not, not doing anything. But I would say that it probably is potentially the most economical, valid, practical leadership development tool that we have. Hey, it's Joshua with the production team. Thanks for listening to Flow Research Collective Radio. Before we dive back into our conversation, there's something to consider. It may be that today we are under-challenged. We're drowning in comfort. Now, in his book, Anti-Fragile, statistician Nassim Taleb pointed out something that's of key importance. Quote, Undercompensation from the absence of challenge degrades the best of the best. The best horses lose when they compete with slower ones and win against better rivals. Now put another way, who we could be, or our highest potential, is squandered by safety, coddled by comfort. If you want to train with us at the Flow Research Collective, it will require boldness. But what's life without a little adventure, right? To learn more about how you can get more flow in your life and achieve your professional and personal goals in less time and with more ease, go to getmoreflow.com. If you're a good fit, we'd love to train with you. All the best. Is it something that you recommend, Jack, even for people who don't have direct reports or even managers, for example, solopreneurs, would you suggest they do it with vendors they work with or with peers even? And the answer is absolutely. Um, if people don't have lots of direct reports, uh, we have a, a program that we've designed for individual contributors. Uh, it measures very much the same things, uh, and people find enormous value from that. And the earlier in people's careers that they can do this, the more valuable it is uh, to them because it, it helps shape their early early path. In, in talking to a very senior leadership development professional a few years ago, I said there, you know, if you were doing all this again for your organization, what would you do differently? And without hesitation, she said, I would begin earlier. We wait too long in people's careers. So the average age of participants that go through our process 
is 46 years. And, and the average supervisor gets appointed to her or his position when they're about 27 or 28. And you think about that, there's this big gap very often between when they're first put into some managerial supervisory position and when they get any real development and help about what does this really mean to you and how should you be changing your behavior to adjust to this new role, many years have gone by. That's sad. That's a, that's a great point. That's a great point in general. Don't, yeah, just don't wait too long. I think uh, a concept that I find really valuable is instead of just thinking about the time value of money, which people are very familiar with, the fact that you know if you can hold money for a long time, you can compound it by getting interest, thinking about the time value of time in a similar way is a big one. In other words, if you front load certain interventions or learnings yeah. or you know change mechanisms earlier in life, you get to ride the benefit of those for a yeah. longer period in the future. So I think that's a really great Very point much. and definitely something yeah that I'll recommend to all the listeners. I wanted to ask you about coaching, Jack, because you know coaching is such a buzzword. People hear about coaching all the time. Everyone hears about instead of being a manager, being a coach, but it's one of those topics that I think people actually feel a little bit murky about, even though they hear about it a lot. So I would love for you to describe how you see coaching and how you see its application within the overarching activity of management. Yeah. Well, certainly if you were to look at the overall field of leadership development and say, what's been one of the major changes that has occurred? It has been this the advent and greater uh, utilization of coaching. I can recall 25 years ago being in a meeting with chief learning officers where one of the first people making a presentation said, yeah, we, we use coaching. We, we identify our bottom 5% of our leaders and we make coaches available to them. Uh, and some of us just kind of grabbed our foreheads and said, oh, my goodness gracious. Uh, but years ago, coaching was primarily done for people who were in trouble, were kind of, you know, nearing, you know, being terminated. And it was a, an attempt to rescue them. And now that's completely changed. And, and we're, we're using coaching the way the world of athletics uses it, you know, that the best people are retain coaches and and hire coaches to help them get even better. Uh, so the, the the use of it has greatly increased. I think the reason for that is that, that the practice of coaching tends to put make make operational a lot of the principles of leadership that we've always you know known were important. Treating people with, with respect, understanding what they're thinking, not just what what you're thinking. And conveying that respect to them by by how you how you deal with them. What we found recently is a is a, a, a added dimension to this whole co coaching question, Ryan, and that is that almost all of the attention so far on coaching has been on the coach, and the coach's knowledge and the coach's technique and the coach's you know skill set. Not very much attention has been paid to the recipient. What can we do to help people become more coachable? And how can we measure that coachability? How can we show them the behaviors that they can practice, which will make them more receptive to coaching and will, will therefore kind of guarantee the success of the whole coaching process to a much higher, much higher degree? We have this good friend, Kevin Wilde, who used to be the chief learning officer of, of uh, General Mills. And, and he, had, he had done some research at a time when General Mills went through a, a layoff of, and they had to lay off several of their key executives. And he came to us and said, you know, can you help me in hindsight figure out what was it that was in common with these people who, who were laid off? And what we what we discerned was that, in a word, they were not coachable. 
their managers had tried to kind of convey concerns, but they had not been receptive. They had not listened. They had not acted. They had not thought about the, the messages and what the underlying uh, issues were. And so it was their lack of being coachable that ended up in their being terminated. And so we think that this, we, we probably have this opportunity to pay more attention to both sides of the equation, the skills of the coach, the knowledge of the coach, the process the coach uses. Yep, those are all important. But we can also do some things on the receiving end to help people who are being coached be better prepared for that. That's a really great point that you very rarely hear emphasized. I also really, really like the way you said that, to paraphrase, leadership operationalized is essentially coaching in a sense. You know, the, the managing in a way that embodies strong leadership ends up in coaching. It's kind of yeah. what I'm concluding from that, which is a really, really great way to put it. So I love that point. You know, Jack, obviously you've been through the gambit of leadership development initiatives and trends and, you know, buzzwords and things like that. One of the things I've noticed in the industry a lot is that people tend to get sucked into topic driven sales where there'll be a hot topic, whether it's, you know, psychological safety or trust or, you know, DNI was a big one in some ways flow in some ways can even be guilty. I think of that, or certain people can use flow as a, as a hot topic, so to speak, to, to sell yeah. against. And so, you know, I'm curious what over the years you've seen stand true and continue to hold intrinsic value versus what things have turned out in your mind, at least to be more transient or fad like yeah. within leadership development in general. Well, you're certainly correct that there have been a long series of books written by gurus and, you know, between you and me, I don't think that's going to stop. We're, we're going to always have people who are intellectually curious and trying to make greater sense of the world that they're that they're facing. But it, it does feel from someone that, with my vantage, I guess, looking back, that things do seem to kind of keep going round and round and round and, and keep coming back. You know, the, the, the fundamental practice of good human behavioral psychology, the, the fundamental treatment of people with dignity and respect, the fundamentals of the best leaders perceiving themselves to be the servants to the people that they manage rather than to being their master. Those are so basic and so fundamental, and they don't seem to change very much. I think we've certainly seen some marvelous changes in my lifetime. Uh, when I was a graduate student in, in business school, there was lots of emphasis on command and control and, you know, and what some would say the hard stuff, but it's really the soft stuff. It's the hard stuff. And it's the helping managers to realize that it's how they treat people, it's how they it's how they deal with people that is is so crucial. Uh, it, you know, it's fascinating that Google did this big study of, of, you know, successful employees in the Google organization back in 2017. And their conclusion was that, that um, their most effective contributors were not the ones who necessarily got the highest grades in school or came from the most prestigious colleges, but it was the, the people who had empathy, compassion, concern, who were good listeners, who were collaborative, who were team players. It, it wasn't possessing you know, the STEM disciplines of science, technology, engineering, and math. It was possessing the, the human qualities and and they they went on to kind of you know do another project just to say some of their some of their best output didn't come from their their most prestigious and brightest scientists it was the what some would might say the, the B teams 
who practiced good interpersonal relationships within the team itself, who were the most productive. And so, you know, I, I think we've made progress. We continue to make progress. I think the recent interest in greater diversity and inclusion is a healthy thing. But the, the, the bedrock fundamentals of managers treating their colleagues with the utmost of dignity and respect is really the heart of good leadership. Mm, that makes that makes total sense. I think that's a great point. And something just for me to clarify is it's not that trust or flow or diversity and inclusion or, you know, any of these things aren't important. It's the, you know, singular focus on them. Uh, and especially the focus on them as a sales tool, I think that can be more along the lines of the transient um, approach. And one other thing, Jack, that I wanted to ask you about is succession planning. And I, I heard a quote recently, which I thought was really interesting, made me pause and think, which was that the number one client of the entrepreneur is their successor. And I hadn't <laughs> thought of that before i'd always thought obviously it's you know it's the actual clients or customers or the the team you know or maybe it's the owners the shareholders but i thought that was a really interesting way to put it. the number one client of the entrepreneur is their successor uh and so i'm curious what you have seen lead to really good succession planning such that an organization continues to thrive and what you've seen lead to the opposite of that <laughs> I, i'm going to be a little cautious in what I say, only because I am not a good example of, of, uh, of one who has really found the right answer to this. You know, the, the, the plight of finding successors, particularly in a smaller organization you know, like our own, is that you're not always financially in a position to kind of create a bench of really capable people waiting in the wings for some senior position to emerge. I mean, everybody needs to be productive. And you know, I've been thinking a lot about this lately because of my, my own situation. And I, I think part, you know, part of the challenge is that the organization is often founded on some idea, some concept, some good research. And the founders kind of try to, to, to magnify that and, and they expand upon it. And most of the organizations that, that I know, you know, really do have uh, a challenge in finding a wonderful second product to, to kind of join, join their original uh, claim to fame. Uh, and so finding, finding thought leaders, uh, I think maybe we haven't been creative enough about how we do that. Maybe rather than believing we can go out and hire somebody who's a, a clone uh, or who has the same skill set we do, only but they're 40 years younger, maybe we need to kind of team up with people who are who are thought leaders and, and really kind of work in tandem with them and then introduce them to our clients. Maybe we don't we don't believe that we're going to find the exact image of the original founders to come in and take their place, but there'll be a, there'll be new new people with different skills, uh, and, and they will build on what the what the founders really created, and lead the organization into an even better place. But it won't be because they were kind of replicas uh, of the original thought leaders who, who who began that organization. It is indeed one of the toughest problems. And I would be I would be very remiss and very, very duplicitous if I told you that I thought I'd found the answer to it, because I'm not a good example of a person who's found the answer. Got it. Well, no, thanks for sharing that. And that, that makes sense. There's a really interesting concept that I've heard that says that every organization usually has one source or one or two sources. And usually it's a, it's a founder or a co-founder. And the person who is the source has this sort of instinctive, intuitive ability to know how to operate the business and lead it to success. And with this 
concept says is that when the business is cut off from its source, it can really quickly go south. And the only way to have it not go south is to install someone and let them become the new source by really letting them stand themselves up rather than, uh, you know, getting caught in that middle of purgatory mm -hmm. sort of land. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I thought that was yeah. an interesting point. What, what have you seen as characteristics of organizations or leaders that have made workplaces you've observed particularly high in access to flow state or engagement throughout your career? I certainly don't have the expertise that you do, Ryan, on the question of flow. My observation would be that the, that the leaders who have been most effective in, in creating that general quality have been those who were capable of creating a safe environment in their organization where people felt that they were uh, valued and respected. They weren't constantly looking over their shoulder. I think that flow state really occurs most frequently when there is this genuine uh, feeling of safety. I, I think it happens when, when there's also this general feeling of, of camaraderie and respect. I've been impressed recently with what strong influence one person can have on a, on a company's leadership team if they bring into that team contention, conflict, you know, confrontation, even though they don't intend to kind of change the culture or change the climate. I think that behavior does occur, seem to me to be very contagious. And so I, I think the other quality is this positiveness and the, the creation of a, of a culture of positivity uh, rather than one of confrontation and, uh, and conflict. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, overall optimism and cohesion. Um, final question, Jack, is a question about a question that we like to ask everyone with academic expertise who comes on the podcast. We call it the research genie question, and uh, it goes as follows. So if you could instantly click your fingers and have all the academic research done to answer any question that you've been pondering, what would the question be that you would immediately have the answer to? You know, I think the question that I would love to have the answer to, and that is, what is it that, that we can do to help more people at a younger age have higher levels of self-esteem and self-confidence? And I know that there's been a lot of, you know, talk about it and a lot of jokes about it, but I, you know, I believe, and I, I don't think I'm alone in this, that one of the keys of a strong leadership team is the is the level of of confidence that they feel in themselves to make decisions and to to, to act and to, to to lead. I I see that the difference in young people. It happens that I have thirty seven grandchildren and 15, 20, 20 great grandchildren, and. I am amazed at how, at a, at a fairly young age, you see some that have this wonderful inner feeling of of confidence and 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 self-esteem, in contrast to to a few others who don't. And if I had some magic potion that I could share, it would be, how do you? enable everyone to have that that inner feeling of um, of peace of confidence of contentment with themselves uh, and the the courage to to step out into uncomfortable territory uh, to not always think that life has to be comfortable but but to have the confidence that if I step into an uncharted territory, 
I'll find the way to I'll find the way to progress. I'll find the way to get through it. I'll deliberately tackle hard things because I I know I can I can do them. Uh, it's it's all that Carol Dweck research on on mindset and and how do you help young people have that growth mindset and not you know not a, not a a fixed mindset. That's that's the question. I'd love to have the answer to. No, that makes sense, Jack. That's a great question. And uh, yeah, again, thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom and time. And I just want to say, you know, I find it just incredibly inspiring that you're still getting after it. And uh, yeah, it's really inspiring to me personally. And I know it will be to a lot of our listeners as well. So thanks for setting such a great example for us all. And uh, where can people learn more about you and the the work you do? Well, they can go to our website, which is www.zengerfolkman.com. Uh, there's a lot on our on our website. We've published uh, some books. We've uh, we publish regularly in Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and LinkedIn, and a few other places. So, uh, you, if you Google us or use a search engine, you can find more than you really want to know probably about what we do and what we think super perfect i'm sure people will go that way and again thanks so much for your time jack really appreciate it you're welcome ryan all righty take care you bet thank you bye hey it's joshua with the production team summer's here things are heating up and ice cream is calling but imagine that instead of just getting to enjoy ice cream you had to run an ice cream business meet nikki schroeder a recent graduate of Zero to Dangerous and Chief Revenue Officer of High Road Craft Ice Cream. Nikki runs the fastest growing ice cream manufacturer in the country. Before training with us at the Flow Research Collective, her life was understandably hectic. Running the company and taking care of her family required Nikki to be on her feet nonstop. As she put it after finishing training with us, quote, Zero to Dangerous has given me powerful peak performance tools for me to take back control of my life and find balance in my hectic lifestyle. Now, we're delighted that you got so much out of Zero to Dangerous, Nikki, and we wish you nothing but success with your business. If you're listening in, you want more control, balance, and flow in your life, come train with us. Just go to getmoreflow.com. That's getmoreflow.com. All the best. If what you've heard on Flow Research Collective Radio has been helpful, please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple, Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.